when a family is forced to leave their home, to leave their home country, where do they go? Often fleeing war, violence, and persecution, these families leave behind everything. Braving deserts, open seas, and uncertainty in search of a new start. The organization we're featuring today, Lighthouse Relief, works in Greece, based in Athens, where tens of thousands of people have arrived from across the Middle East and North Africa, hoping to find refuge. My guest today, Marie-Hélène Rousseau, explains, however, that so many of these families find themselves living indefinitely in camps outside the city, waiting to be processed for asylum, caught in no man's land, unable to move forward, unable to go back, stuck in a very difficult circumstance. But as we discover today on the Edge of Adventure podcast, Lighthouse Relief is standing by these asylum seekers, providing much-needed support, guidance, supplies and services, helping these families to endure, to thrive, and ultimately to continue their journey toward hope. This is where adventure meets purpose where we get to know those who live life beyond status quo. My name is Adam Asher, and this is the Edge of Adventure podcast. As always, it is a privilege to have you joining this conversation. Every one of these conversations is important. And of course, we talk with people from around the world doing remarkable things, giving of themselves, putting themselves not first, putting themselves second or third, and always looking to take care of, of other people, serve other people, often in desperate need, like our conversation today. Marie-Hélène Rousseau is our guest. She's joining me today from Lighthouse Relief. First of all, Marie-Hélène, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. It is great to have you. And I was eager there to jump to my first question. My first thought, though, is as we think about Lighthouse Relief and the work that you all do. You serve as a beacon in harsh times. What are these harsh times? So I think to understand this phrase, it's necessary to talk a little bit about how we started as an organization and what our roots are. So Lighthouse Relief actually started on the North Shore of Lesbos almost six years ago. Uh, we started when a group of independent volunteers banded together as a way to provide support to the many, many people who are arriving every day, fleeing conflict and persecution. At the time, unfortunately, the local community of Lesbos were the main kind of responders to the situation. Fishermen were going out into the waters and rescuing people. People would open their cafes, people who were arriving. And we felt that we really wanted to both support the local community who was giving they're all to support people who are fleeing conflict, but also to provide a warm and compassionate welcome uh, to people who had been through so much. 
So um, this idea of a beacon is very much shining a light of warmth and compassion, um, helping to guide people along their next steps along this often very traumatic and very difficult journey from conflict into displacement into often years spent waiting in limbo for their next steps. So throughout the time when uh, asylum seekers arrive in Greece uh, until they're able to move on to their next steps, whether that be in Greece um, when they receive their international protection as refugees or when they're able to move on to other countries, we hope to provide this beacon of warmth and of compassion that can help people, that can guide people in their next steps. So our aim is very much to provide people with the information and the tools that they need during this very difficult period of their life in order to reach those next steps. And when we talk about the harsh conditions, the journeys that people take from beginning to end are very difficult. And often there is no end, even when you arrive in a new place. So we can get into some of the challenges that people face, but I just wanted to kind of distill what this really means, what it means for us to be a beacon. You guys are, you're very much a beacon and the harsh conditions, the two terms that we introduced to get the conversation going is just this idea that you guys are this metaphorical beacon helping to show the way and to people who, who definitely need the help. Generally speaking, the asylum seekers that you are helping, the people who are caught in limbo, who have left their home country and they've left it and they're moving to another country. Often, I would assume you'll know better than I, but often it's not as much about landing in a particular place or being in a particular place as much as it is finding a place that is safe and allows them to move forward with some kind of a life. Well, let's talk about not necessarily the specifics, but speaking in, in generalities, the asylum seekers, and many would call them refugees. I don't know if you guys use that term. I know many would think of them as refugees. They're leaving countries seeking refuge somewhere. What are the situations that they're leaving? How bad is life for them that they would leave their homes and go anywhere else? Well, first, I just want to make the distinction between refugees and asylum seekers um, because often they're used interchangeably, right? So an asylum seeker is someone who has uh, claimed asylum, who is in the process of seeking asylum. A refugee is someone who has actually received international protection. So a refugee is someone who's actually at the end of the asylum process, which can, as we were saying before, be an extremely long process. Unfortunately, um, people do have to leave their home countries in order to seek asylum. Um, so often people have to take very dangerous methods in order to reach a place of safety. So when we talk about uh, the journeys that people are taking and, and why people take these journeys, it's clear that these journeys are extremely dangerous. And it's also clear that if the situations in people's home countries were not unbearable or extremely dangerous, then people would not make this, not even really a decision to leave. Often people have no choice but to leave and to board, for example, a very flimsy boat that can take them across the sea and into Lesbos. So this is what we saw every day working on Lesbos because we were working to receive people who were fleeing conflict and persecution. So 
uh, when we were working on Lesbos, our emergency response team was the first kind of response to people arriving on the shores. So when people would arrive on the north shore of Lesbos, our team would provide a warm welcome. So we hope to provide a, a few moments where people could feel welcomed, people could access some support, some comfort. So we would provide emergency blankets, dry food, bottles of water, and through our partners, access to medical care because people had been through these extremely dangerous journeys. So we have seen people fleeing from conflict, from persecution, from strife. Um, and I think it's very important to remember the situations that people are fleeing from and that they're very deserving of all the support that they can access when they do arrive to a safe place. So that is what we try to provide. We try to provide a warm welcome. We try to provide access to that support as they're waiting for their next steps. This is The Edge of Adventure. My guest today is Marie-Hélène, and she is joining us from Lighthouse Relief. You can look them up online at lighthouserelief.org. Asylum seekers, refugees. We talked about the difference between those two, and you're right. That's a term that we, most of us out here would use interchangeably. We think primarily about the fact that they are fleeing some sort of a situation that is deadly or extreme and desperate. And so they're fleeing that, they're refugees. And yet, as you guys know so, so well, there is such a process that they have to go through their own journey as they find and build their new lives. And so that's that's where you guys come in, I know. Lighthouse Relief. Again, let's set the stage, putting this into context, several different things we want to talk about here. You guys started originally on the island of Lesbos. And because oftentimes that was the place where the asylum seekers were first arriving and you were able to begin to care for them in that way, right? That was Lesbos. Now, fast forward, what are we, five or six years later, as you guys have continued to work with the asylum seekers, where are you based now and where are you finding the area of most need and where you guys are able to step in and meet the need? Currently, our operations are focused on a Ritsona refugee camp, which is just outside of Athens, as well as working in Athens itself. So in Ritsona camp, we're currently providing support to children and youth in the camp through four different programs. And just to give some background about Ritsona, it's a camp uh, where 2,400 people are currently residing. So we started working in the camp in 2016. So just to give a bit of background, we started working on Lesbos in September of 2015, and then the situation continued to evolve in Greece. And in 2016, the borders to the rest of Europe closed. So in 2015, Greece was very much seen as kind of a transit country. People would arrive on the shores of Lesbos and then make their way to other countries in Europe, often to meet family members who they had been separated from and to start new lives. So unfortunately, in 2016, the borders completely closed and uh, there was the EU-Turkey statement, which meant that thousands of refugees and asylum seekers were then trapped within Greece. So at that point, we knew that there would be increased needs on the mainland of Greece, so where we're currently working in Ritsona camp. So we expanded from Lesbos to uh, Ritsona camp, where we started providing services to children and to women. So since then, our services have very much evolved along with the need as the need has continued to shift. 
So currently in Ritzona Camp, we're providing support to children and youth through a child-friendly space, which targets children aged three and four, a youth engagement space, which targets youth 15 and up. Because in 2017, uh, we were aware that youth, especially young adults and teenagers, were not getting the support that they needed, and they're often left out of kind of the humanitarian system in terms of support. Um, and we're also running a resident volunteer program, and through that we actually work with uh, members of the camp community, so asylum seekers, in order to plan and implement our programs. And we also have a sports program which works with children as well. So that's kind of the, the psychosocial support side of our programming, which is currently in Ritzona Camp. And on the other side of our programming, we're currently working in Athens for the last year or so, for almost a year. And there we are supporting uh, refugees and asylum seekers and migrants who are experiencing homelessness. So unfortunately, there have been increasing numbers of refugees, asylum seekers and migrants who have been experiencing homelessness as a result of uh, withdrawing of many forms of support. People are often left unsupported, for example, now, when someone actually receives their refugee status, uh, they only have 30 days of cash support as well as accommodation before they have to find their own housing. And obviously, this is extremely difficult for anyone to do, let alone someone who is new to a country. So we started a street work program as a way to provide support to people as they're navigating this very difficult process. What we have found with the street work program as well is that even people who haven't received their asylum yet, people who are still in the process and who should have access to accommodation and who should have access to support are also not receiving the support that they need and often living in extremely precarious conditions without stable housing or in completely unsustainable housing that has you know, no electricity or overcrowded or they're facing street homelessness and they are forced to live in parks or sleeping rough. So as the situation has evolved and as people are increasingly moved from the islands, which were very much um, until now, which were very much over capacity, as people are moving from the islands to the mainland, we're finding that the needs are very much increasing on the mainland. So I think I'll leave it at that for now, not to go into too much detail, but that's kind of the, the main needs that we're covering for the moment. Marie-Hélène Rousseau is my guest today here on The Edge of Adventure. She works with an organization called Lighthouse Relief, and they are, of course, working, as we're discussing, in and around Athens, Greece, with the asylum seekers, refugees, and so forth. And Marie-Hélène, I figure my job as the host is to ask the questions that the listener might have, that the viewer might have. And this is something that you, you work with this day in and day out. You know the answers. Those of us out here, we look at this situation and we think it's very complex. There's so many different levels of need and so many ways that their lives can be complicated or difficult. Okay. So there's so many ways and, and forgive me for oversimplifying it here, but just to understand, again, I think you said approximately 3000 people are in this camp and the camp is the Ritzona camp outside of Athens, Greece. There's approximately 3000 people there. Did I hear that correctly? 
Currently, it's about 2,400, but um, its largest it has been almost 3,000, yes. When they go into the camp because they have nowhere else to go, correct? Well, not exactly. I mean, when people arrive in Greece and when people uh, lodge a claim for asylum, often the place where they have to wait for the results of that claim are in camps. So refugees and asylum seekers in Greece live in a variety of different accommodations. There are a number of camps. So there are the island camps. And then on the mainland, there are also a number of camps. But there are some accommodation programs, such as one called Estia, which is specifically for vulnerable refugees. Some asylum seekers and refugees choose not to live in camps because a camp can be dangerous for them. So, for example, a single woman living in a camp may feel more at risk and may prefer to live in a city where she already has connections. So it really depends. Um, but uh, yes, as part of the asylum process, people do unfortunately have to live in camps. And approximately how long is the process if they go into the camp, the assumption being that their immigration status is being processed, right? When they go into the camp, how long are they expecting to be there? Well, I think it's not for me to say how long people are expecting to be there, but I do know that over the years, people have had to wait longer and longer for their asylum claims to be processed. As the situation has very much evolved since 2015, 2016, when there was the resettlement scheme. So basically people who were seeking asylum were being resettled to other countries in Europe. Now it is very difficult to be resettled to other countries in Europe. So we are finding that this process of seeking asylum has become much more protracted for people. People are having to wait for years in a camp context for their asylum claims to advance. And this has been further complicated with COVID. Uh, COVID has very much delayed these administrative processes. So back in March, April of this year, um, many residents of Ritzona camp, and by residents I mean asylum seekers who are residing in the camp, were notified that their asylum interviews, which is kind of the first step of the asylum process, that even their asylum interviews would not be taking place for up to a year. So if you can imagine, that's a year that you're waiting just to have that initial asylum interview. And that's the very first step of the process. After that happens, then you have to wait for the additional steps. So it is a very long and arduous process for people. And people do end up in limbo for this entire time. Because when you're living in a camp, often in a very isolated location, such as Ritzona Camp, which is 20 minutes by car from the nearest city on a very winding and kind of hilly road, there are very few opportunities for stimulation, often for both formal and non-formal education. Since the COVID situation started, uh, most, if not all of the children in Ritzona hadn't had access to school in over a year. Now they're finally enrolled and we're very optimistic that they will be able to go to school in the fall. But it's just to give a sense of this limbo that people are living in for years in which they are waiting for the next step of their asylum process without much information about what will happen to them. Often people have been separated from their family members that are in other countries in Europe and people have to go through kind of a very long family unification process, which can be obviously extremely distressing and I think we all kind of got a taste of, uh, you know, what it means to have your life on hold 
because in COVID, a lot of us were separated from family members for indefinite periods. A lot of us, you know, couldn't travel. We couldn't pursue educational kind of plans that we had, career goals. And, you know, for asylum seekers living in a camp context, this is a day-to-day reality that was then further exacerbated by COVID. So to answer your question, and sorry, it, it ended up being a slightly longer answer, it can be years that people are waiting in this kind of protracted uncertainty, which has hugely detrimental impacts on mental health. And that is why we are in Ritzona camp, so that in this interim, so in this in-between time, that we can provide people with the tools and the support and the stimulation so that they can continue to build towards their futures, so that there can be some kind of continuity and hope for whatever comes next. And hopefully what comes next will be soon. But we know that sometimes it can be a very, very long process, unfortunately. This is The Edge of Adventure. I'm Adam Asher. More from my conversation with Marie-Hélène Rousseau from Lighthouse Relief in just a moment. But first, I do need a favor. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd like to ask you to please share it with a few people. It'll help us tell these stories of hope and sacrifice to an even larger audience. You know, I've been watching the numbers grow consistently over the last year, and I am humbled and honored by the growth, by all the attention and the success that The Edge of Adventure has received of late. But I got to thinking, if we were all to invite a few friends or members of our family to tune in and follow the podcast on the podcast platform of their choice, we could easily double or triple the current number. So please give it some thought, whether you listen on Spotify, Apple, Google, TuneIn, Acast, or Rugged Compass. Hit that share button and message it directly to a few people who you know will value this type of conversation. Or send them this link, theedgeofadventure.com forward slash podcast. That's theedgeofadventure.com forward slash podcast. Please do it for me. Thank you. Now back to my conversation with Marie-Hélène Rousseau from Lighthouse Relief, right here on The Edge of Adventure. My guest today here on The Edge of Adventure is Marie-Hélène Rousseau from Lighthouse Relief and learning today about the situation, the asylum seekers and refugees. Many would say, again, I'm going to use a term that the rest of us use out here. We, we think of it as an immigration crisis. That's a word that gets used. Is this a crisis? Do you like that word? Do you not like that word? I notice you you haven't used that word. Tell me about that. You've noticed it very correctly. We don't use the word crisis to refer to the situation in Greece for a number of reasons. Um, I know that people often refer to the situation in 2015 and 2016 as a refugee crisis. For one thing, I think that the word crisis gives the impression that the situation is fleeting, that there are these heightened needs and that they very quickly dissipate. And along with that, the attention of the world also fades away. So when you frame something as a crisis and you frame it as an emergency situation, people do lose interest. And we've seen this happening with the situation in Greece, where because the situation was framed as this crisis, in the years following, you know, the needs and the situation was ongoing, 
but the world's attention moved elsewhere. And along with that, the support that a lot of NGOs and asylum seekers were also getting in Greece moved elsewhere as well. So I think it can be a very harmful narrative in terms of the world's attention going elsewhere and the situation of refugees and asylum seekers not gaining the attention that it deserves and the sustained attention that it deserves. I think what's also important to say is that, and what concerns us and what we find harmful about the words refugee crisis is that it gives people the impression that people arriving is the crisis. And people arriving is not the crisis. What we find to be the crisis is the lack of safe passage and the lack of migration policy by which people can safely move, by which people can safely go to another country claim asylum and receive the support that they deserve. We feel that the crisis is more in the often what we see as a lack of compassion and a lack of warm welcome for people who are fleeing extremely difficult conditions. So yes, I mean, I would just emphasize that that this situation is very much ongoing. And even though the world's attention has moved elsewhere, people are still very much here in Greece, uh, people are very much in need of moving on to their next steps and rebuilding their lives. Marie-Hélène, question for you. As I've gotten to know the organization, done some research, as I get to know you here and listen to you speak, I know that you have a, a heart, you and the entire organization, you have a heart for how things are portrayed. This is something that you all approach very delicately, very carefully, very intentionally, Anytime you're talking about the asylum seekers, you do so in a way that always leaves them their dignity. Talk to me about that, your approach, the organization's approach to this story. Um, that's a really good question. And thank you so much for um, your kind words about how we portray refugees and asylum seekers. I think, you know, from the very beginning of Lighthouse, storytelling has always been extremely important to us. And it's also representative of our general attitude. Uh, we strive to have a dignified and ethical approach to all aspects of the work. And we strive to work with the people who we serve, so refugees and asylum seekers, in order to determine their needs in a very collaborative way. And we want to, at all times, be accountable to the people that we're serving. And part of that accountability is also having this dignified and accountable approach to storytelling for multiple reasons. I think it's important to say, and I mean, this is quite obvious, but the people we are serving are individuals with their own individual journeys and stories, opinions and messages. And what we strive for is, you know, for our social media platforms and for our communications to be seen as a platform for the people that we serve to elevate their own messaging. So we try to never impose a message onto the people that we're working with or to assume how they're feeling about anything or to speak for them because there are people who have voices and who have opinions. So our goal is very much to be there as an entity who can elevate those voices and, and those opinions. Unfortunately, what's often missing from the conversation around migration is the fact that people making these journeys are individuals. I think we often see in the media that people are referred to as kind of a group or they're referred to as a mass of people who are making these journeys. 
But what we think is often missing is a three-dimensional portrayal of the people who are themselves affected by migration. And we feel that the voices of the people who are affected by migration are often missing from that conversation. Our approach to storytelling is very much our approach to working with the communities we work with. And hopefully that can be seen in our photography. And I think we try to be very deliberate and we ask ourselves always a question around everything that we share on social media, every photo that we share. We have a very deliberate consent process with the people that we work with because, you know, if we take a photo of someone in camp, we want to make sure that they're being represented in the way that they want to be represented. And I think that that is something that we would do with anyone that we're close to when we take a picture. If we think of our friends and family, we have to always think, would I want my family member, my friend, to be represented in this way? And we believe that refugees and asylum seekers have agency and should have agency in how they're represented. So that's why we try as much as possible to be this kind of platform for their messaging, um, but also to be extremely deliberate and extremely careful in the way that we are representing people, because ultimately we're accountable to them. I'm not sure if that fully answers your question. I think it does. I think you did a great job. I know that things are complicated, and I know that uh, many times the the needs and the crises are caused by multi-layered issues. It is the world we live in. But what is important to me is the respect of the individual families and the individual people who are facing difficult challenges and decisions. And it is easy, I know, for people to step back and look at the political problem or the political challenges. And, and those things have to be sorted out. You know, there are people who are called to work in those ways and, and for those purposes. However, the story, the individual story of the person or the family, and, you know, the thing that always gets me, I think what always makes, helps me personally to connect is just to imagine if it were me, what would I do? How would I be affected? And in, in my own life where I can get so consumed with whatever it is that I'm dealing with and be so focused on my own problems and my own issues, whatever they might be, and imagine if it were me facing those kinds of decisions, those types of challenges. What would I do? What would I need? What would mean something to me? And while I've never been through that, I've been through things in my own life. And I can tell you those moments when, when I was pretty much helpless in a situation and someone showed me grace or love that meant the world to me and in turn allowed me to move on and move on through life and then hopefully do the same for someone else down the line. So I appreciate that about you guys and, and how you clearly love the people that you're working with. So let's talk about the psychosocial support. What does that mean? Okay, so here's the other thing about me, and I've learned the more of these interviews that I do, the more I've, I've learned we, we have to sometimes define the terms that to some people are very obvious and then to some of people like me, and I always say, I'm, I'm just a radio guy. I'm just down here you know, doing a podcast. What does that mean? Help me understand what that really means to the people who are receiving that support. What does it mean to them? Absolutely. And I think that's an excellent question. And it is one of those terms that we use all the time in the humanitarian world. And sometimes it kind of loses its meaning because we, we use it so much. But I would define, uh, and this is 
perhaps not everyone's definition, but I think that psychosocial support can be defined as activities uh, that can help to promote someone's mental well-being. So we can make the distinction between psychosocial support and psychological support because psychological support often takes place in a clinical setting. It can be, you know, one-to-one therapy or group therapy in which you you would use different therapeutic method, uh, methods such as talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Whereas with psychosocial support, it's more creating opportunities and providing activities that help to promote mental well-being without necessarily being one-on-one clinical support. So what that means for us specifically, so I'll start maybe with our child-friendly space. So in the child-friendly space, it's basically a safe space for children three and four. So in this space, they can play with their peers so they can engage in structured play. They often don't have an opportunity to do. Uh, They can engage in craft activities, which can help to develop their growth motor skills. They can, you know, engage with their peers and peers from different communities whom they might not otherwise have access to. And then we also lead them in fun activities such as song and dance. And then extremely relevant to your question, I think, is these exercises that we do within the child-friendly space that helps to foster the emotional regulation of children. Children experience stress in a variety of ways, and um, they're growing up in a context of displacement and can often, you know, feel the, the stress of their parents, even if the child hasn't themselves been through a conflict or if they've, you know, spent most of their lives in Greece, they can still feel these impacts of forced displacement and they're still grappling with growing up in a context uh, like Ritzona camp. And especially at a, at a really early age, it's important to have you know, stimulation and and early development activities, as well as psychosocial support. What we have started doing now for the past year is providing these exercises in emotional regulation. And what does that mean in practice? So we're providing different tools that children can use in order to quiet their minds, relax their muscles. So it can often be leading them through fun activities where they're reaching to the sky and, and Uh, where they're also kind of recognizing emotions in different people and also fostering loving kindness by passing around a heart. So these kind of simple but small exercises can really help to foster the resilience that already exists in a lot of children. So that's that's kind of the child-friendly space, psychosocial support in a nutshell. I think the youth engagement space is also extremely relevant to your question because it's also a safe space in which youth who are age 15 and up can engage in a broad um, variety of activities. So both recreational activities like playing chess. We have a lot of very talented chess players in the youth engagement space, as well as playing volleyball, playing music. So there's a lot of jam sessions that happen very organically in the space. So it is really a space for the youth to shape and to make their own. So that's kind of the foundation of the psychosocial support that we offer there. But then we also have activities that can help the youth to foster their creative talents. And many, many of the youth are extremely talented. They're talented musicians, talented writers and artists. And, you know, they often don't have an outlet to exercise these talents. Um, and it's extremely important, I think, especially at a young age, to have a space where you can exercise your creativity so uh, across the world for kids in any context. So we offer this, and it also has immense psychological benefits to engage in artistic activities such as drawing, 
music. Um, and then in the space, we also offer informal support. So our staff is there um, in case anyone wants to talk about, you know, any sensitive issue that they're going through. So if someone is experiencing heightened anxiety or trouble sleeping, or if they're feeling frustration around the asylum procedure, which of course a lot of people do, they know that they can approach our staff and have a conversation around this and our staff can offer support and some guidance. And one of the strong points of the space is that it's not seen as a psychological space um, because there's often a lot of stigma that people feel in seeking out psychological support, right? So because we're seen as this fun and recreational place where people can come connect with their peers, play different instruments, it lessens that stigma that they might feel in approaching someone and you know, sharing and unburdening if they're facing an issue. So we found that that is really helpful in terms of being seen as a safe space where people can come and get the support that they need, or they can just come and have a, you know, a fun afternoon playing chess or volleyball. And it's, it's a way to disconnect. It's a way to also connect with peers from different communities within the camp. I won't go into all the programs because I think that we could be here for a while, but that's just to give you a glimpse of what psychosocial support means to us in practice. So it's creating these activities along with the youth. So it's very much about listening to what activities the youth want to do that can provide this stimulation and the support. And, and that in turn can help to promote mental well-being. Marie-Hélène Rousseau is my guest today. She's from Lighthouse Relief. And they work in Athens, Greece, in and around Athens as well. And we've been talking also about Ritsona Camp. We've been talking about Lesbos Islands as well. We know that that was where you guys got your start and rich history of service that you guys have. As we get close to the end of the program here, I want you to touch on the vocational training and services and how what Lighthouse Relief does to help the people in this way, because we can't close the program without touching on that a little bit more. So please do that. And then perhaps anything, anything else that we haven't touched on that's important to make sure we communicate. Absolutely. So thank you for bringing up the vocational training that we provide as well. So I had touched upon this a little bit earlier in the interview, but um, we also run what we call a resident volunteer program in Ritsona camp. And within that program, we work with volunteers who are living in the camp themselves in order to plan and implement the activities that we're doing in the sports program, in the youth engagement space and in the child friendly space. So through this program, we also offer specific training to the resident volunteers. So these trainings can be around subjects as vast as conflict resolution, child protection, which is very much a staple of humanitarian work, and different things around sleep hygiene. Uh, so these trainings are meant to not only support the resident volunteers in their own mental well-being and give them the tools that they can use to kind of provide themselves with the support, but also to provide them with a solid basis that they can use not only for the work that they're doing with us in Ritsona Camp, but also for future opportunities that they might have, you know, when they're able to leave Ritsona Camp, when they're able to go to a new country or, or to make a new life in Greece as well. And one of the needs that I'm not sure if I mentioned, um, but I think I touched on was, you know, because people are spending years in limbo, 
this is a time in which you cannot meaningfully work towards your goals. So if, if your goal is to be a teacher or a humanitarian worker, if you're in displacement, it can be very difficult to access the tools that you need in order to, to reach those goals. So what we hope to do is, um, through the resident volunteer program, to provide the support that people can benefit from in the present by providing those psychosocial tools that I mentioned through the trainings, but also to support people in their futures. So to enable people to build towards their long-term futures, even in this time of displacement and limbo. And there's also a huge gap in vocational training for people, for refugees and asylum seekers in Greece. So we hope that these trainings can help people in their next steps. We also provide letters of recommendation when people move on to their next steps. And also, I just want to add as well that uh, working with the resident volunteers has truly allowed us to maintain our programming throughout the past year, especially as previously predominantly a volunteer kind of driven organization. Um, when COVID hit Greece, we were we were first forced to suspend our in-person programming for a period of time because of a national lockdown, but also to ensure that we kept everyone safe, our staff and residents in the camp. But when we started again, it was very difficult to have volunteers. So truly, we would not be able to do what we do without the help of resident volunteers. And not only that, but resident volunteers also ensure that we are accountable to the communities that we're serving. And that is extremely important to us, and it's extremely important that they play a huge role in kind of the planning and the implementation of these activities. So in a nutshell, that's the Resident Volunteer Program. Marie-Hélène, there's nothing complicated about what you guys do, is there? <laughs> it depends on how you define complicated. Yeah. <laughs> you handle it very gracefully, but we can, as the listeners, the viewer, we realize how involved this operation is. It's no joke. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of work I know for you and your team and the volunteers that are on the ground living in the camp and really making a very tangible difference for these people, these families, these kids, these teenagers, these adults. I know we've only scratched the surface. There's so many other things we could talk about, but I think it gives it gives us just a taste of all that you guys are doing and how worthy of our respect and support and and encouragement you guys are. So I just want to thank you for caring for the people. Complicated scenario, heartbreaking scenario, but you and your team are doing such a valuable work caring for the individuals, showing them love and respect, but also giving them the tools and, and the encouragement to keep moving forward even at a time when doing so is a challenge. So thank you for that. Marie-Hélène Rousseau is my guest today. And we've been talking with her. She's from Lighthouse Relief. You can look them up online, lighthouserelief.org, lighthouserelief.org. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They're on Twitter. You really can't help. If you just do a search for Lighthouse Relief, you'll find them. Great accounts. And as she mentioned, they're telling the story. And they're doing it in a way that respects and shows the appropriate dignity to the people that they're helping, which is one of the things that I've liked about you guys from the beginning, since I first discovered you. So uh, with that, Marie-Hélène, I just want to say thank you and I appreciate what you do and, and really appreciate your time today. 
Thank you so much. It really means so much to us. And I just want to add one last thing as well. Uh, when we were discussing, you know, what's often missing from this conversation around forced displacement, I think, um, you know, the conversation we often hear in the media is about the unique circumstances that people are going through that have led them to be in displacement. But I think it's also worth remembering that there are also many universal things that connect us to the people who are facing these extremely difficult circumstances. And I think there should be room in the conversation as well for the universal qualities that we all share. And I think we've seen this a lot in the youth engagement space where you know, the youth that we meet every day are going through extremely difficult and unique circumstances, but they share so many similarities with youth in any other country. I mean, they are in the very complicated process of figuring out who they are in this very difficult situation. But, you know, like youth everywhere, they love music, they like TikTok, they, <laughs> they like art. And I just think it's important to remember that there's so much that connects us and People are just living in very difficult and very different circumstances, but that doesn't mean that we don't share these universal qualities with them. So I think it's just something to keep in mind. And we just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about our work. Well, thank you so much. I like it. That's a great point and very well stated. We're all just people. We're all just people. You know, we have sometimes different backgrounds and different histories, different stories, but we are all just people. We're all the same in that regard. So a wonderful thing to remember. And I think when you do, when you do, it does help to tie us all together. And that's so important in a case like this. So anyway, Marie-Hélène, awesome now to count you as a friend, to know a little bit more about Lighthouse Relief. And again, I encourage the audience to look up you guys, get to know you, send you a message of encouragement, come alongside you financially, any of those things they feel led to do. I encourage that because that's what makes these things go around. Lighthouserelief.org, lighthouserelief.org, and reach out to Marie-Hélène and ask her how you can help. All right. Thank you again, Marie-Hélène. Uh, you're uh, an inspiration. You guys keep up the great work. We'll be in touch. I'm sure I'll have you back on the show soon and uh, hopefully be getting some good news in this uh, continued situation. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. My name is Adam Asher, and you've been listening to the Edge of Adventure podcast. To learn more, log on to theedgeofadventure.com. And while you're there, check out the video series where we go off the grid to discover some of the great things people are doing all around the globe to make the world a better place. I call it my search for adventure and purpose. You'll find us on social media too. Just look for the hashtag, The Edge of Adventure. Thanks for joining us. Always great to have you with us as together we aim to live life for something bigger than ourselves. This is The Edge of Adventure, where we go beyond status quo. Beyond status quo.